are listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring, a podcast for manufacturing marketers brought to you by Cooler Partners. My name is Jeff White and joining me today is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you doing, mate? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. I'm glad to hear you're doing well. <laughs> I mean, you just never know these days. Yeah, it could be touch and go. It could <laughs> be touch and go. Look, okay, the... I'm excited for today's conversation. I think we're, um, uh, you know, we're going to be able to dive in a little bit further into a scenario that I think a, a lot of manufacturing marketers can kind of identify with in some way. Is that so often we find ourselves, you know, an organization has ha, has had a, a gone through a, a time of accelerated growth, or even potentially an industry has. Kind of sprung up seems almost yeah. out of, as if out of nowhere and there's a time when there's just wind in the sails and you can almost do no wrong as the marketer right yeah. um, you're riding the wave of a really great product with a ton of interest yeah yeah or you're working in a new category that just has, yeah. has a ton of interest and um but of course as as marketers at some point we have to um uh we, we have to work a little harder at it and uh, I think uh, today's guest is going to help give some insight into that harder work. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Put a little structure on the bone. Indeed. You know, indeed. So joining us today is David Stark. And David is a digital marketing transformation growth leader. Welcome to the Cooler Ring, David. Well, thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. I appreciate it. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And I know that like, your, your career spans... Um, uh, a, a plethora of organizations in the interesting don't, don't, category. Don't call them old. Well, uh, experience, Jeff. Experience. Yeah. But, but David, he, he, he worked with IBM for uh, for quite a time, and and then most recently have um, have worked in the three D printing space. Correct. That is right. That is right. Yeah, I've been uh, been around uh, marketing for about a hundred years. Uh, it seems. Uh, almost 20 of which were with IBM in the past four years in the exciting uh, additive manufacturing or better known as the 3D printing space. Fantastic. And I guess that's the category that we're kind of uh, teasing out a little bit. In yeah, the IBM show. rarely is called the innovative upstart, although they do do some very innovative <laughs> yeah, things. They're gonna, yeah, they're going to be mad at you now for yeah. saying that. I was going to say, many people just rolled over in their chairs at IBM <laughs> when they said that. But. Well, they don't call them Big Blue for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, there's bruises along the way. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but yeah, 3D printing, comparatively speaking, is um, uh, better categorized as something that is still relatively new. It's perceived as a new approach to manufacturing by many, many companies. Um, although it has been around for a long time, uh, the two uh, companies that I worked for, in fact, were uh, around for around 30 plus years uh, and arguably the innovators in creating uh, fused deposition modeling and uh, selected laser centering and, uh, and so forth. So, um, you know, if you're going to start an industry, you better finish the industry. But the reality is about six years ago or so, it was a little before I got into this space, uh, 3D printing was the hottest thing since sliced bread from a stock market perspective, right? Everybody was assuming or projecting that every household would have uh, a 3D printer in it. And, and why wouldn't you, if you believed the hype at the time, right? Uh, why wouldn't I want to print out spare parts in my guest bedroom uh, when I break something at home? Uh, why wouldn't I want to be creative and create some cool art piece uh, and whatnot? Uh, why wouldn't I want to duplicate... Um, 
anything that was actually going on in my house, kind of like that Star Trek replicator idea kind of thing. Uh, but the reality was that 3D printing is, is harder than people assume, and, and arguably it's more expensive than people assume. So the consumer market, uh, although it is still there and strong, you'll find it very entrenched in education and in hobbyists and people doing what's called prototyping in the space. Um, the reality is that the value proposition wasn't there as well. Companies, in other words, couldn't make as much money uh, until you looked at broad manufacturers, right? And broad manufacturers are making stuff. Um, and why shouldn't they embrace a technology? The, the challenge over the years was um, the technology had to catch up with the needs and requirements of the manufacturers who needed to produce, in some cases, what we would call mission critical parts. But um, without digressing too much, so the stock market really hyped up 3D printing for a couple of years, and then the bottom fell out. So uh, we might have a company might have had shares selling for like a hundred bucks a share. Well, now they're like seven dollars a share. So so the mighty have kind of fallen, and now those companies are uh, working quite hard and in some cases quite well to uh, amplify their value propositions, to penetrate the manufacturing space, and to sell stuff, sell more things, uh, but more at an industrial manufacturing uh, arena. Was there a, you know, in your time in the space, was there a very visible delineation between, you know, the um, the home market for this just isn't going to happen and we really need to focus more on manufacturing? and Or was that always a big part of it and, and the uh, the hobbyist side was just a, a, a nice to have? Um it was a mixed bag, to be honest with you. At one shop that I had worked for, they owned a, a company called MakerBot. Um, and MakerBot is pretty well known uh, and uh, still continues to thrive today. Um, and it was more of the hobbyist or a prosumer level kind of capability, uh, a lot of penetration into the education space and so forth. But that business in the company that held it, a company called Stratasys, was um, kind of left into its own. Right. So it was a separate treated as a separate business. It was managed separately. It was marketed separately and so forth. Whereas the, the Stratasys machines, its portfolio uh, and the acquisitions they made in the space were more around the uh, the industrial world, the professional grade manufacturing of, of printers and the materials and so forth that they required to deliver the characteristics that their end use parts required. Um, it 3D Systems, uh, they had dabbled in and had been arguably pretty successful in the consumer space with a product line called Cube, which is one of their products. Um, but over the years, the focus inside the business, my perception had changed uh, and the products basically went end of life. There were some additional investments in the space to try to revitalize the uh, the B2C side of the house. Um, uh the product didn't take off as it had been anticipated it would take off. And again, the money was being made in more of the industrial and professional side. Um, and that's where the focus lay. So one of the things that you mentioned uh, in our conversation in the lead up to today's show was this um, notion that at some point these organizations need to make a shift from a uh, engineering driven and perhaps even mm -hmm. sales driven environment that values more tactical marketing, if you will, and shift to more strategic marketing. Uh, I see that, that that's very true. And actually it's worth noting that in both organizations cases, 
Um, what, what it also changed with the changing of the emphasis at the broader marketplace, at the, at the stock market, if you will, was that the competition became suddenly very, very fierce, particularly at the lower end of things. Mm. So a lot of commoditization started to take place from companies that hadn't even existed uh, five years ago um, that were actually well-funded, VC-funded, and so forth, um, and became very hard to compete there. So it's tough to also seed the, uh, the market to somebody who's new. But if you're going to stay in that market, then you need to understand you're competing on the commodity basis and uh, you know value for your dollar. Um, but what became also true because the competitors are coming at the low end because the high end was so attractive, competitors also started showing up there out of the woodwork kind of thing. And uh, whereas uh, Stratasys and 3D Systems were, were really big companies and still are in this space, uh, new guys came in um, like uh, GE and HP. You know, those, those new kids on the block decided. Just little companies. Yeah, little, little companies. I mean, you know, who would have thought that they would have grown up and done these things? But they decided they were going to get into the space about four years ago or so. And that was great because that validated the market. Uh, but at the same time, added a, a layer of complexity to the market. They had competitive technologies and they had deep pockets, right? And, and you know, the, the challenge was that they would uh, potentially come in and uh, drop a bunch of money in the space. At the same time, there's other competitors that came up as well. Um, companies like Carbon 3D, which you can go ahead and take a look at. They're funded by like Google. So they have lots and lots of money. Uh, and uh, that also became a challenge. So if you think about marketing here, uh, the challenges for any of these companies, including the ones I worked at, was how do you differentiate yourself in a space that's become even more crowded? And how do you uh, start to build a brand that actually resonates with a broader audience so that you're on that short list continually. You couldn't rest on your laurels and say that, well, because we've been here for 30 years or 35 years, of course we're always going to be on the short list. Well, the reality was these other guys coming in, big and small, had deep pockets and were willing to spend money to kind of break into the market and build mind share and market share. And suddenly you found yourself slugging it out in ways that you hadn't anticipated slugging it out. I'd be curious, um, was it the new entrants, just well-funded new entrants, but that are new brands that were the hardest to compete against? Or was it the established big brands like HP or what have you coming into the space that made it harder? Um, I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, you know, you got to pick one, though. I want to know which one was tougher. Uh, I know. I know. There's a lot. You didn't tell me there'd be all this kind of pressure here. <laughs> hard decisions. Um, I, I think the more challenging marketing competition came from the newer brands. Um, I think the, 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 the challenges came from technologies and just deep pockets and longevity that was projected by these larger, more established brands. Although new to the 3D printing arena, you know, one might assume that uh, uh, GE would still be around uh, for a while. Right, uh, that GE would have invested heavily in the technology. In fact, GE was using its own technology to manufacture its own products, its own turbines, its own things. Well, maybe not turbines, but along those lines, right? They're in so many different industrial spaces that they were manufacturing for these spaces as well. So they were kind of drinking their own champagne, as the phrase goes. That's interesting to me. Like I can, like I just had this. You painted this picture of this. Uh, you know, the, the marketer waking up in the middle of the night to find three new competitors under their bed or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And two of them are 100-year-old computer tech companies. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Whereas all of a sudden, you're, we've been in this space for 30 years. really doesn't mean that much anymore. Well, 
and, and uh, you know, to kind of go back to some of the IBM stuff for, for just a moment and only to reference a phrase, I promise I won't bore you with IBM or stories. But, um, you know, we used to say, don't get Ubered, right? Uh, because the, the reality is these companies kind of came into the 3D printing spaces where they hadn't been before. Uh, at least they hadn't been comp competitors before. Um, and some of them became co-opetition. You know, there'd be times you'd partner up with them, with them. But the long and short of it is, if you as a marketing team weren't sophisticated enough to anticipate what might happen, when the the inevitable unexpected did happen, you were kind of left going, uh, what? So uh, an example of that, uh, without getting into to details here, is you know uh, one of the companies I worked for really felt that they had engineered materials and in, in 3d printing materials are like the ink to a printer right so the materials so they had en engineered materials and their their technology in such a way that if you wanted to print really really strong parts you could do so right and by strong parts i mean you know no human being could actually bend and break this part they had a certain tensile strength certain uh, chemical resistance heat resistance, you know, characteristics of different polymers and all that kind of stuff built in, right? And they had been doing that for a while. Like, of course, we make the strongest stuff. Well, one of these uh, younger upstarts kind of came in and they just completely started to own the make strong parts space. Just And just even using that phrase, right? So suddenly it became uh, where you couldn't just go in and tell people, of course, we make the strongest stuff. I mean, look at who we are. We're awesome. Uh, the reality is these other guys were out marketing the, the business for a while and gave our sales teams much, much agita. Like, how come people aren't coming to our website in droves looking for the ability to make strong parts hmm. uh, and so forth? Um, and when you get behind the scenes of some of those things, you know, the engineers are great about validating how great and strong and truly uh, awesome their stuff is. But if you can't articulate that value proposition at three in the morning in a digital space, when people are looking for it in a language that they're looking for it, then you're kind of dead in the water because the value of the longer, the value of the brands that had previously been the only game in town was lessened uh, by all these new entrants coming into the spaces that had sexier money behind them to kind of amplify who they were and what they did and uh, spent some time to simplify some of their messaging. So it resonated. Yeah, it seemed to me that um, there's like the new entrants have a bit of a gift of focus that the folks who have been in the space for longer and have served a broader customer set or have come to market with a broader kind of value prop, if you will. And offering. Yeah, it's like it's like the toothpaste, right? It's yeah. like, you know, um, uh, Crest and Colgate can try to talk about sensitive teeth all they want, but Sensodyne still owns that category. Yeah, because they have the gift of focus in that space. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, a focused portfolio matters quite a bit. Um, both of the companies that I worked for had very large, diverse portfolios, um, and they were also publicly held, uh, which also affords them different challenges than some of the competition, at least some of the newer upstarts. Um, yeah, you're, you're constantly at least in a digital arena, uh, you have the opportunity to continually monitor and observe what your competitors are doing. Uh, you have the, the obligation to try to evolve your content uh, and surface it in such a way that it's meaningful and, and engaging. Um, but at the end of the day, there are 
levels of a business that need to really hone in on the who we are and what we do message. And if you don't get that quite right, it's just that much less likely that somebody who's not bought from you before is going to seek you out. Are your digital marketing efforts bringing in too many junk leads? Stop wasting time and distracting your sales team. Account-based marketing can help give your marketing strategy the laser focus on qualified buyers that you need to increase your pipeline velocity, close more deals, and grow your business faster. We've created a sample manufacturing ABM plan to help you get started. Download the sample manufacturing ABM plan at bit.ly slash sample ABM. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash sample ABM. David, I, I, I th- that's a great jumping off point because I, you know, one of the things that you were able to do um, at these organizations was really, you know, to use digital as a catalyst, I think is the way that you phrased it to us before, yes. you know, and, and can we, I'd like to dive into that a bit and just get an understanding of, you know, what did you do in order to define their their digital presence and and to really structure your marketing in that way to to help those companies grow? Yeah, and, and there's probably not a, a very clean answer for it, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, so one of the first things uh, that I needed to do at both organizations really was um, look at their web presence overall and find out, was it? Uh, contemporary was competitive did it clearly surface meaningful value and uh, did it have meaningful entry points that somebody could easily click on and ultimately on the back end would that create a lead for us right so uh, the the web presence needed to be revisited uh, for both organizations and I think for many organizations, that's a place that you kind of set and forget, but you do need to revisit that web presence from time to time and make it better, stronger, faster. You don't have to invest, you know, a gazillion dollars in doing that. Sometimes it's just a matter of having some good design resources available to you, either internally or externally. Uh, but that was something that I needed to revisit, no doubt about it. Now, given the complexities of those organizations, you could imagine there were a lot of opinions about what kinds of content and messaging and so forth should be surfaced throughout that experience. And, and you won't win every battle, uh, for sure, nor should it be a battle per se, because a lot of these organizations don't have um, a lot of digital experience in, in, in kind of taking a website. It's easy to make a website pretty. Um, it's, it's a much different thing to make the site so that it has some longevity to it, so that it has organic traction, uh, that it is uh, very consumable, that uh, customers are willing to traverse the content and get a little deeper in the experience, that you have appropriate photography and videos and so forth that were actually created for that channel in and of itself. Um, you can't take uh, a brochure or white paper or even a PowerPoint presentation that your sales guys love and necessarily take that with its PowerPoint images and stick them on your website. It just doesn't work. So we had to go ahead and reinvent the websites and uh, a long journey therein, no doubt about it. Um, the other things that I, I, I revisited were uh, things like social media presence. Um, basic lesson learned there was uh, social media is about conversations. It's about surfacing interesting content, arguably with an emotional spin to it. Uh, And that could be just making you happy or making you think. It doesn't have to be like getting tears out of you. Um, But you have to have conversations with your audience. You have to know your audience. You have to make it easy for your audience to actually find you. Um, And what we had at one of the shops uh, where I had responsibility for social was uh, what I call social media multiple personality disorder. So they might have had 
because of the silos that existed within the organization, each silo had its own little social media slice of the pie. And if you took it from the perspective of the poor human beings on the other side of the glass, they didn't know where to go to actually hear what the company had to say and inter to interact with them. Um, so that became a challenge. You kind of you kind of diffuse the effectiveness of your communications if you're everywhere and you're not managing any of them particularly well. The other thing that kind of came into play was actually how do you measure the effectiveness of both the website and social and anything else we've talked about. How you measure it matters quite a bit. Um, but in social, in particular, uh, there really wasn't an effective way to measure the influence of their of their pushes. Um, they were reporting up to the CEO on a weekly basis the number of likes they had on Facebook. That was like literally what was shared. Uh, so we had to make that better and spend a lot of time doing that kind of thing. Um, think about organic search as a foundation, right? Uh, organic search is one of those marketing terms that's been around for a long time. Uh, people don't talk about it because it's not sexy necessarily today, but it is foundational and fundamental to how any brand, any company actually grows over the long term. Because if you don't get that foundation right, what you end up with is you, you're just working that much harder to make your meals. You, you have to uh, pay for it, right? You have to push out a bunch of emails. You have to drop a bunch of advertising dollars. Your sales guys are working that much harder. Um, you'll find that you're only resonating with people that recognize your brand. But if you're looking for people that have never heard of you before but still have a pain that you saw for you have to be willing to instrument your entire digital ecosystem and in particular your website in such a way that the content is findable at three in the morning when somebody just starts off saying, um, I need to print strong parts. Right? So do you want to be found? And how do you, do you have content anywhere on your site to, to resonate with that? In addition to all the technical stuff that goes under the covers to making sure your site hunts. Think about paid media. Something else that we had looked at as well. Um, paid media... Paid media, there's never a perfect approach to paid media, um, but I'd say one of the things I'd advise anybody on is making sure that the paid media you are investing in is working and delivering the results that you'd like um, and that you're doing so as efficiently and effectively as possible, um, which sounds obvious, but the reality is a lot of companies don't spend the time to understand what's actually going on. They're giving a lot of money to an agency in a lot of cases, no matter what size the agency is. And they're looking at the results once in a while and they're like going back to the agency and kind of whipping them like, hey, how come I'm not making more money? I'm paying you 15% or 10% a month for my stuff. Where's my, where's my, how come I'm not making more money? You guys are doing it wrong. And the reality is within the business, you might not have the, the focus or the skills. Um, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just maybe you haven't invested in the skills to actually work with the, the paid media partner to ensure that the, what you're investing in is aligning to your business objectives and that the agency partner, or even if you're doing paid media in-house, that those people are enabled and empowered to do the jobs that you've retained them for. You know, um, so, so those are just some of the areas that were looked at and, and improved upon. We also revisited things like the technical stack, like do we have the right technology under the covers to actually make marketing magic? happen? Uh, do we have KPIs that we can actually look at and observe so that we know that we're making progress? Um, you have to think about progress as well in terms of short term and long term, right? Short term, most businesses are like, oh my God, fill my pipeline. My salespeople are eating hot dogs and beans, right? But uh, strategic marketing is more about the long term. So what are we going to be when we grow up? How are we going to get there? 
what are those KPIs, if you will, and how does everything we do underneath that house of KPIs align to making progress against those results? There'll always be the strange diagnostic measures that come under things like paid media, CPL, CPA, CPC, CPXYZ, whatever. Um, but a lot of the uh, management team that's investing you in, in you and empowering you to make these changes won't speak that alphabet soup. They need to see something at a higher level. Um, the practitioners need to see the diagnostics. The executives need to understand the impact to the business overall and uh, without blowing them away with the detail that you can bring to bear as a digital person. So, I'm curious, David, how do you find like, um, you know, when you, uh, when you speak of uh, revisiting the web presence, um, uh, getting the organic search foundation in order, which inevitably means um, applying a more sophisticated information architecture lens to that web presence, typically than what the organization's experienced before. And, um, you know, as I think of all these things, and if I had to um, package them up in some way, it really is a long-term vision of how to sustainably grow an enterprise um, that's based on some, like you, like I think you mentioned, digital marketing blocking and tackling, if you will, that has been around for 20 years now. I mean, paid searches, or sorry, organic search isn't new. Um, although, yes, algorithms change, et cetera. Sure. Um, I'm just kind of curious, how was how the, that received? How do the people in the scene, because I, I found that, um, you know, sometimes when there's a level of sexiness to something new, um, uh, people get a little bit more excited about investing in it. Um, and, and but I, but I fundamentally agree with your approach. There's too many people chasing bright, shiny objects and not doing the basics right that actually lead to long-term success. But I'm just kind of I wish I was a fly on the wall for some of these conversations. I want to know how they went. Um, sometimes good, sometimes bad. It just know <laughs> what was going on. Um, yeah, organic search is a great example because it is a journey, right? It's not an overnight thing, and depending on the health of your business. Um, and what your leadership team wants. Sometimes that journey is, yeah, that's great, but what are you doing for me this quarter? Um, and so you have to temper the long-term potential with the short-term deliverables. You still need to fill that pipeline full of, full of magic so that everybody mm. is, is making money. Uh, but helping to explain why we're doing this, why we're investing now, why it's going to cost X dollars to bring in a platform, why we need to have somebody doing this full time is like their, their job day to day matters, why we need to influence what say product teams are creating and the messaging and even the names of stuff uh, based on uh, the, the organic signals that we can derive by having these capabilities in house matters. Uh, why we need to create content where it hasn't been created before with these uh, what I'll call evergreen pages, right? So that we have this organic equity building over time. And how do we leverage our domain authority, which is basically how big of a website do you have and how many internal signals does Google read to give you some authority here? Uh, you know, building that over time uh, ends up saving them money 18 months from now, 24 months from now, and so forth. Um, but the conversations can get very tense around this. It comes down to literally like calculating, well, how much will it cost you to buy a hundred leads, which will generate 10 qualified opportunities worth X versus 
how much will it cost you today to invest in a platform uh, and invest in a human being uh, that you know 18 months from now it will cost you why right so you you, you kind of need to break it down into the dollars and cents to some extent and at some point you have your break even in organic uh, that says you're getting more people to seek you out and to find you so you're having to work less hard and spend less money to bring people in organic and paid have this yin and yang kind of relationship right um, what you want to focus your paid media dollars are are on those more competitive terms and uh, more of those short-term strategic things right where you just got to raise the volume knob really loud now um, organic allows you to continue to curate an audience over time if you found the right if you found the right monthly search volume uh, and your content hunts and you bother to refresh that content every so often, it just helps offset the marketing costs overall. So yeah, those, those conversations were interesting. Uh, I think is a good way to characterize them at times. And sometimes it's a leap of faith. Like, look, trust me, this is going to work. This is why this exists. But, but lots of people don't like to take that leap of faith. Um, which goes back to how well do they understand the potential power of digital marketing? Hmm. And you, you were able to prove that that investment was worth it. Were you not? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. I did survive. I have some scars to prove it, but we were <laughs> able to, to show uh, the long-term organic, uh, organic growth and some of the competitive positioning and so forth. A lot of that had to do with the instrumentation path that I chose to take. Um, if you don't have the luxury of making those investments, um, then it's a little more difficult to relay your story. But a good organic person will will go out of their way to help you to understand what's going on and where we're making progress. Uh, but it does challenge the business to think about what are the priorities, right? What are we really trying to be known for? And it can't just be, you know, the name of my product is Purple Product, right? People are going to type in Purple Product or they're not. You want to be found if they type that in. But if somebody wants to type in, you know, product that allows me to taste grape juice uh, on a Tuesday, if you don't have any content for that and your competitors are there, you need to spend the time to create the content to offset the competitors and kind of disrupt their pipelines. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I was, long long answer, short question. But, yes, we, we were able to show the, the long-term potential and some of the short-term benefits of doing it right, um, but it is a journey. Yeah, I always chuckle. Of course, the longer the sales cycle, the, uh, it doesn't. The sales cycle duration does not seem to impact people's desire for short-term success. Um. <laughs> uh, that, that, yes, that's absolutely true. And 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 there's a realization across the spectrum of the buyer's journey, right? That it's many many touches that happen with a customer at different or a prospective customer over the long the lifespan of their relationship with your your brand. Um, and the challenge, a lot of companies are good at focusing energies on creating content messaging, websites, paid media, social media activities, et cetera, around people further into their buyer's journey, right? So they're more close to comparing you to a competitor. They're more close to wanting to know more about your product where companies take their foot off the gas and really where they need to put more emphasis on is, is before that. So before they can even spell the name of your company. How have you distilled the value proposition for the things you sell and how do you get those words out there and how do you surface the content that's meaningful and engaging and how do you surface that content across the different uh, digital venues that are available to you, paid, organic, uh, you know, social, your website search, you could define it, paid, owned, earned, whatever you want to do. 
at the end of the day, you, you need to kind of be on in many, many places. A lot of companies will refer to this as multi-channel marketing, or they'll refer to it as omni-channel. It all depends on how sophisticated you are. Uh, that begets other cool ideas around account-based marketing or ABM and other things. I feel like we could just uh, jump off from there and have about four more episodes. Um, <laughs> but I'm also aware of the time. Um, so, Dan, I, just, I, I think I just want to sign off and say thank you so much for sharing your expertise. I know we've kind of wandered a bit here in terms of uh, exploring um, uh, the marketing reality uh, that an organization faces as they move from a honeymoon period into something that's a little bit more competitive. I think it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for uh, sharing your expertise with us. Uh, thank you for, for the opportunity to share this here. Yeah, it was we kind of wandered around a little bit, but I think in a, in a good way. Uh, I think a lot of companies out there have had similar sorts of challenges where the shine has kind of come off of what they had done. The world has gotten more competitive. Uh, crazy things like COVID interrupt your lives. And uh, it comes back to some of the fundamentals. Who are you? What do you do better than anybody else? And how are you instrumenting the systems and using the cool technologies and evil capabilities you have to kind of make sure that you're findable? Hmm. Love it. Thanks a lot, David. Thank you. Appreciate it. All the best. Thanks for listening to The Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.